On GDC Podcast episode 21, we have Lindsay Grace, Night Chair in Interactive Media and Associate Professor at the University of Miami School of Communication. He joins us to chat about games in academia, games with social impact, and the Black experience in game development. This episode was recorded live at GDC Showcase in March. Back in a sec. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for GDC Podcast Live on day one of Game Developers Conference Showcase. I'm Chris Graft, Editor-in-Chief of Gamma Sutra. Uh, we've got a very special guest uh, who we're excited to have on. Uh, but first, my esteemed co-host, Alyssa. Hey, Alyssa. Hello. Hi. Uh, I am Alyssa McLoon. I am the news editor and associate publisher at Gama Sutra and also the um, frequent podcast co-host here. Um, we're very excited to get started today. We have a ton more podcasts this week, but today um, I get the honor of introducing our next guest. Um, our next guest is the Night Chair in Interactive Media and Associate uh, excuse me, Associate Professor at the University of Miami School of Communication, the Vice President of the Higher Education Video Game Alliance, and 2019 recipient of the Games for Change Vanguard Award. He is the author of books including Doing Things with Games, Social Impact Through Design, and Love and, El Love and Electronic Affection, a Design Primer. Until just a couple years ago, he was the VP of Global Game Jam. He's made a bunch of his own commercial games and games that tackle social issues. He's also a past GDC speaker and a future GDC speaker as well. Um, so let's welcome Professor Lindsay Grace. Hey, Lindsay. Hi, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about social impact games, to give you a little about my history and tell you about some of the other work that I've been researching. Really eager to start this going. Thank you. Yeah, great. Um, was that a long enough intro? I, we, we just uh, read directly off of your, uh, your resume. <laughs> So, That's a long uh, resume. Uh, You're a busy person. <laughs> High energy. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things is your night chair in interactive media at University of Miami. Uh, what exactly is that? Sure. Well, besides sounding like a cool title having to do with it does sound cool, yeah. <laughs> it's explicitly a, a role that the Knight Foundation, the James L. and John S. Knight Foundation set up to support researchers who are trying to uh, extend uh, industrial practices towards sort of social benefits. So my particular role is in doing things like investigating the intersection of games and journalism or the intersection of social impact in games and bringing a kind of um, high, high level of focus and research activity in the space. Very cool. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you became involved in uh, game academia? Sure. Uh, it's kind of a, it may be an atypical route, but I started making games when I was about nine uh, and I programmed them on an Apple II. And I've always had that passion. I took a break from it for about 15 years and then turned over to uh, doing more game design and development, mainly through uh, a variety of sort of personal projects, indie games. And then from there, uh, I've been faculty for almost 15 years at this point, dating myself. Uh, and I've worked at a variety of organizations. So I think uh, I originally started at the Illinois Institute of Art, and then I moved over to Miami of Ohio. Then I moved over to American University where I started their program. Uh, and then also uh, currently at the University of Miami. 
uh, helping them with the kinds of research that I'll talk about in a few minutes. Yeah, I, I had to I had to check because I actually went to Ball State University, yeah. in Indiana, Mac 10 school, and I had to double check uh -huh. if it's like Florida, Miami or <laughs> Ohio, Miami. But yeah, you're in, you've been to both. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it's a running joke. <laughs> Given your background and how like many schools you've worked with and how long you've been teaching, how is the, uh, that kind of like ballpark is the wrong word. How's that uh, field kind of changed as since you started to now? Sure. So there are a lot of things that have changed. Um, one of the things I think if I, I go backwards, uh, the world of game uh, education used to largely focus on game development and design with all of the sort of uh, notions around that. So obviously teaching game art, teaching narrative, but what's changed over the last couple of years in particular is that more and more of us are teaching a wider array of um, understanding games. So that includes topics like game studies, which is kind of like the, um, the sort of social sciences and uh, humanist approaches to understanding games and their intersection with culture and with society, but also doing things like teaching esports. So I'm teaching a course right now that's literally about esports broadcasting. Uh, and the idea is that as games have been accepted in academia as a legitimate topic of study, we've had the ability and opportunity to spread out to more than uh, just sticking to the practical implementation. Okay, so what what is a class um, like? What you're teaching right now? What, what does that look like? Uh, you're talking about the like esports and things like that. What does the curriculum uh, look like? Sure. So we've had this pattern, I don't think I'm the only faculty member to do this, where we generally pull together resources, especially because the academic precedent for a lot of this isn't there. So obviously we use resources like GDC, um, using the vault, using YouTube content. We also uh, draw a lot of experience from industry practitioners. So for example, in the esports class, we have Mary Kish over from Twitch come in and uh, give the students a kind of, here's how I got where I was or where I am. Uh, and then we usually lay a foundation. So in that class, for example, I'm using T.L. Taylor, a faculty member over at MIT, I'm using two of her books and she's done a wonderful job in that she's actually opening, she's got one that's open access so the students don't have to pay extra for books. Uh, and that kind of class, it's, it's sort of all over the place. Uh, it depends on what's needed that year. Because one of the hardest things about teaching games is that the students come in with different skills every year. So where we may have had to teach them about streaming two years ago, now a lot more of them are doing their own streams. So um, when, you're, when you're teaching these kids, what is the, uh, you said you've been doing this for 15 years. How has the landscape of academia changed in those, in those past years? It has to be fairly drastic, I would think. Yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. It absolutely has been. So the way I describe it is that in the early years, so we'd say sort of mid-2000s or so, uh, there were programs that were earlier than the mid-2000s. But this is when you saw that big balloon. We saw a lot of academic programs being created. One of the challenges was simply getting the provost, the president, the department chair to believe that games were worthy of being an academic study. And so for some institutions, it was easier because they could make the claim at the size and scale of the industry and say, we'll prepare people to be game designers, we'll prepare them to be game programmers. But what's happened over the years is that argument has shifted from, is there an opportunity to work in the industry to wider questions about what can we do with games? Is this going to increase people's ability to become educated on their own? Are there uh, things we should be studying that have to do with the way that people behave when they play games? 
and so over the years, the conversations moved less from establishing a legitimate academic practice and more towards helping people understand there's a huge space uh, in, in sort of doing academic work around games. And that what they're basically, uh, we're trying to help people understand is there's so much more we don't know. So that's where game studies comes in. That's where games and psychology come in, games and health. Um, there's a lot of really fascinating uh, intersections. And I think the other thing that's changed is that there's pressure from outside uh, students saying, I want a games program. There's pressure, for example, uh, I spoke on a panel for the um, Department of Homeland Security last week, and they were explicitly interested in how we can uh, help people uh, become more media literate through games, uh, recognizing games as a core media diet for many people, uh, and also how we can kind of improve people's experiences so, so that they are more critical of the online interactions they have with people. So the pressure comes not only from the game industry, but also from a variety of other uh, spaces that are looking to employ games. And that feels like kind of a, a recent shift too, because I, I went to a college, I went to Dakota State University in South Dakota. And at the time we were one of the few universities that had a game design program. And like even getting into games media, I had to like kind of have a real big back and forth with my advisor about like the value of it. Uh, but what you're describing seems like a completely different landscape. And I didn't graduate that long ago. That's quite the shift. <laughs> yes, yes. And I mean, I think all of us in games recognize that the shifts happen uh, pretty quickly regardless. And the people who succeed tend to respond well to that. So I often encourage students to get their sort of, um, to get in the habit of trying to read what's coming down the pipeline so they can ride that wave. Uh, but it also reminds me that I should probably put on my vice president of the Higher Education Video Games Alliance hat and emphasize that there are more than 500 such programs worldwide. Uh, and that there's also, I mean, my experience is in the US, but there are all kinds of other initiatives abroad that are focusing on the strengths of spaces like New Zealand or Australia or um, sections of Europe. Um, so I guess as those uh, discussions emerge and everything, there's also kind of the ongoing, always present debate that pops up every now and then, whether a degree in game design is, quote, worth it, or if you're just better off kind of getting all these now easily accessible tools and just kind of learning on your own and self-teaching. How do you feel about the, that discussion? Do you have a take on one side or the other? I do, and I actually have a, an older GDC micro talk that um, emphasizes it. The idea to me is that getting an education in games is kind of like getting a 21st liberal arts education. If we're doing our work correctly, what we're doing is empowering you to be um, responsive to social change, to be responsive to changes in the industry and to adapt in a way that's very healthy. So I think early generation games programs were largely focused on skill sets and training. And I differentiate that from education. I think good education is about giving you the skill set or rather honing the skill set to learn better. And so a lot of what the strong games programs do is they don't say, we're gonna teach you how to do this thing in this game engine. Instead, from my opinion, they're emphasizing a, a core set of um, uh, almost innate habits in students that let them adapt so that if they wanted to be indie designers and developers, they could, if they wanted to go AAA, they could. If they decide, as many of my students have, that they wanna take what I would consider all of these sort of ancillary jobs in the industry. So I have students who work at, say, the Smithsonian Natural History Museum as the person who decides what games are in the museum, or people who work at uh, news organizations, helping them make decisions about how they can employ news games. I think it's a good way because it, it it helps prevent some of the long-term burnout or changes that may occur from people who say, I got to work on my dream first-person shooter. I want to do something else. 
So the argument for education from my perspective is explicitly trying to give them enough tool set so that they can turn that 21st century liberal arts education into something that works for them for 30 years in the future. What's the kind of, I guess, starting point there when you're setting out to create a course or a program that opens all of these doors for people? What's kind of the one idea you start with and then adapt that to make it have this wider um, use? Sure. So I think in, in, in the sort of brief history of games, it's often been we're going to pull in a bunch of people who are fans of playing games and we're going to turn them into consumers. This is the classic sort of, I'm sorry, turn them to producers. It's this classic model of lots of people are passionate about games. We'll get all these consumers and we'll turn them into producers. I think that that still works somewhat, but I think the other trick is that the, 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 the origin of a lot of this interest is in a broader topic. So for example, when I um, started the program at American University, I was really focusing on people who simply wanted to engage wider audiences or get people to engage in things more deeply. And so because we had this very um, grand perspective around what we call social impact games, the idea was to bring in students who were very excited about solving really big problems in the way that potentially only games could. So I think that's one of the, if you're looking for sort of like rhizomes as to how these work, um, that's one of the rhizomes. The others are obviously just good old fashioned passion, a sense for um, the love of games, uh, which I think we all carry. And I think when you're working on something at 11 p.m. and you know you're not gonna be done till 3 a.m. is part of the, the thing that keeps you going. Yeah. I just wanted to acknowledge some of the, uh, the folks that are in chat right now, live discussion. And yeah, if you're if you have a question, go ahead and flip over to the questions tab in the discussion box. And uh, you know, if your question is if your question is frankly if it's any good, we will we will bring it up. No, but uh, feel free. We we have an expert here, um, games academia and research and all that. Um, so if you have any questions about that, please do drop that in there. We would uh, we'd appreciate that. So you were also uh, an author uh, because you don't have enough uh, other things going on. Um, so why not write a couple bucks? Um, so you, you released a book, it's called Doing Things with Games, Social Impact Through Design. Uh, let's talk about that. What, what, you know, what, what's that topic? What is social games with social impact? Sure. So essentially, this particular book, which is my first book I had written by myself, uh, is, a, I think, a, a collection of all of the lessons learned through the prior 10 years in helping people meet their goals through games. So I spent uh, years doing contracts for a variety of organizations from the World Bank to ETS standardized tests to Deloitte Consulting. And all of these folks had a, a kind of um, thematic set of needs. So I kind of label those as the things they wanted to do with games. Mm -hmm. They wanted to improve assessment accuracy. So they wanted to substitute the standardized test with a game. They wanted to um, help people improve the community around them. They wanted to help people be better savers, or they wanted to help people understand complex ideas quickly so they could make informed decisions. One of my favorite kind of exotic experiences while I was doing this work is that uh, I had actually had a chance I was called into Bernie Sanders' office, the, the senator, and he had some interest, and it was really quite astounding to me. I was used to this kind of uh, assumption that people were trying to turn consumers or players into something they needed, and he just turned and said, I want people to make better decisions that benefit them politically. And that really kind of inspired me and seemed like one of the most interesting things someone was trying to do with games. 
And so uh, the book is really just uh, three, three different sections, one an introduction to the fundamental concepts of social impact, play and design. How can you um, change someone's interest activities or opinions through games? How can you educate through games? How can you empower through games? And then the middle section takes a bunch of case studies. So it looks at things like um, improving people's health, mental health or physical health. It looks at um, empowering communities through play, getting a bunch of people to play together so that they can make shifts that benefit them. And then the third part is literal implementation. And so uh, it helps people understand the ethics of doing this kind of work or uh, how we structure real life studies in this work to, to evaluate what we call efficacy, whether or not it worked. Yeah, yeah. that's just Well, like what makes for an effective social game um, you know, when you, you look at it and it's like, oh, it made a social impact. Like, what, what is sure. that? How does that work? And this is a this is a question that I think particularly academics and researchers have been asking for a long time because um, efficacy or its ability to, to make some kind of change uh, can be measured a variety of ways. So the, the like the formal researchers will typically do something that's kind of a pre and post survey. So they'll have people take a survey, they'll have them play the playable experience, and then they'll have them take another survey. And we've done that in cases. So for example, in uh, assessment work that we've done with ETS. And what happens there is we can demonstrate that people either improved, they knew more about a topic or processed something differently, uh, or that they are um, more accurate. So for example, in, in some games, what we see is that people will um, be practicing something within the game and it might be, for example, detecting fake news. And so we'll give them an assessment as the folks that, um, who did the bad news game did. Uh, and we'll give them an assessment as part of the game and then we can actually record their change. But on the other side, sometimes we think of um, impact as something that's not as easily quantified. It's not 40% of the people got a B on the test, they played the game, now they've got a 90, so we feel good about it, they're in the A range. Sometimes it's literally about people reflecting, which is a, a longer history, and it's actually part of the art practice as well. Essentially having people go ahead and play something and then reflect on their experience or have their experience carry with them well beyond what they've played. So these are the games that are designed to kind of change your opinion on a matter or editorialize something you may have never thought about before. And in those, we have less of a formal evaluation. Why, why are games uh, especially equipped to, uh, you know, move people to change? Is, is it just sure. the fact that they're interactive or, or what's sure. psychologically going there? So in doing things with games in particular, I actually emphasize that um, there's a theme, and I, I often say this in some of my presentations, which is if we're thinking about narrative or we're thinking about the experience of other media, it's like with a book, readers read the book. With film, people watch the film, but with games, they do the game. And whenever someone says, oh, I want to play this game, what do I do? You've kind of got this wonderful opportunity for people to practice different behaviors or to think about different goals. And the way I typically frame it is I help people understand that game designers do two things. They create problems and they create solutions. So uh, the case study I use all the time is Super Mario Brothers, absolutely wonderful game, or any other game that you could think of that's, high, that's extremely popular. We created the problem. We put Pac-Man in a maze and we told you you have to collect all the pellets before you get out. That's the fundamental of game design. So when we're talking about social impact, we have this opportunity to engage people in problem solving in really interesting ways and to get them to see at least by analogy how the problems they solved in the game may actually relate to real life. Now I'm going to go to 
the uh, the live discussion. Okay. Yeah, I didn't want to. We were talking social impact, and there's a lot of great questions in there. I, I didn't yeah, I know they're better than ours. Um, so, uh, we should, did you want to take some of those, Alessa? Uh, sure. There's a lot of students in chat today, so con uh, you're continuing to inspire a generation. Um, one of the popular ones here is uh, what can students trying to get into the game industry do to really make their resume and portfolio more impactful while they're in school? And this is from Chris Harbin. So I, I get this question often, and um, I don't think people always love the answer, but I'll be candid. I think if you want to make an impact on potential employers, you need to make an impact. So um, fundamentally, what that means is uh, you should be making games if you want to go into game making, and then trying to prove that you've made an impact either by quantifying your experience as someone selling on Apple iOS, or in, by winning awards at a variety of contests and uh, showcases like IndieCade or IGF, Independent Games Festival. Essentially, the, the thing I always tell people to do is to try and um, demonstrate that they're worth having on the team, because that's the fundamental question that most have. And I think college is a really good opportunity to, to, to explore. So when I talk to my students sometimes, many of them have aspirations to go into the industry and they particularly like AAA, and they forget that sometimes it's about doing one thing exceptionally well because that shows impact. So many of them try to do the shotgun approach where they're gonna be audio people and artists and developers and designers. And that job may work, may exist at an indie designer developer, but if they're going into AAA, they need to be just a really good modeler or um, all of, that's maybe not the best example, or a really good designer and have something in their portfolio that is worth people recognizing and saying, oh, wow, that's great. I want to know more about this person behind it. This kind of builds exactly off of that. You might have just great. answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And then it kind of touches on what you talked about earlier about how the games academia has evolved over the years. Um, Michael Martin, or sorry, Mitchell Martin wants to know in terms of roles within the games industry, do you find a more it is more practical to pursue a generalist role or a specialized one? So my answer is going to depend on uh, a lot of factors. Uh, so I usually do individual counseling in this context. So for example, I've, um, I've taught students in a variety of environments. Uh, if you are interested in going into, say, uh, a, um, an environment like Austin or San Francisco, and you want to be at a AAA, then I would strongly suggest that you not be a generalist, but instead try to get a strong focus because competency is really important. However, uh, when I was counseling students in, say, Cincinnati, Ohio, where the cost of living is extremely low and they were thinking about going indie, I would tell them the opposite. It's like, if you can make games by yourself and make a living doing that, then I strongly suggest you, you consider that approach. And I know that it's scary to, um, as, a, as someone trying to get employed and coming out of college, to figure out where you're going to go. But I think most people, and I just gave this lecture for the Games for Change um, Festival for a, a different project, but most people in this domain and a variety of other spaces that are still new and evolving don't have a clear, distinct path. What happens is we're opportunists. I worked as a, um, uh, in finance, I worked in banking, I worked in industrial supply before I became a games professor. And if I talk to some of my peers, they all have a kind of circuitous route to where they've gotten in, in their career as well. 
I'm going to just fire off one more since we're on this uh, train of thought yeah. here. Um, so you've talked about the your, your current experiences as an educator, your past experiences. Um, what do you think the future of academic study of games is going to look like, in, especially in terms to uh, critical studies and psychology versus degrees in other aspects of game creation? How specialized do you think these degrees might be in 10 or 20 years? And that is from Avi Love in chat. That is a great question. Um, I like looking to the future. My general expectation is that we are going to see two things happen. I think first you're going to see um, a general understanding that uh, games and game studies, uh, both as game design in a program or game studies as an analysis of say psychology or um, narrative in games will expand. The number of programs that are being generated these days uh, I think it looks similar to say film in the 1970s, where it was strange maybe in 1950 to say I'm a film major, but by 1970 everyone was like, oh yeah, well, what kind of film do you do? Uh, I think you're gonna see the same with games because there was a point at which people were like, oh wow, you're studying games. Now no one's impressed or surprised by that. There you tend to ask the next question, which is, well, what kind of games do you do? Or what kind of games are you studying? And you can see some of that happening at the graduate level uh, across the world. So you've got um, a variety of programs that are highly specialized. And I think that's going to precipitate down into to, uh, undergraduate simply because there are so many programs and they need to specialize. I'm going to steal one more from the uh, from the chat because I um, I have this question as well, and it's from Tig Kelly. Hey, Tig. Um, so, uh, what's the gold stand the gold standard example of a game with social impact and why? Ooh. So um, I have a variety of examples in the book. And so I'm going to kind of pick a couple off my um, off the top of my head. Sure. And they're not necessarily me saying these are the absolute best, but instead I think they're good at demonstrating uh, social impact and they really vary. So for example, um, I think that uh, Foldit is a good example of a large scale opportunity in what we call human computation games. These are games that take all the work you're doing in game and convert them to a real world solution. In this case, you're protein folding and you're actually helping in the decision-making slash data sets used to create um, uh, medication. So I think that's a really good example because it's got a very linear relationship. Um, likewise, Remission, which is a health game that is, um, if you read the wrong headline, is credited with helping to cure cancer, not quite that, it's not that grand, but essentially it changed its players' behaviors so that they were better at abiding by the um, medicine regimens and then improved outcomes for cancer, for pediatric cancer patients. So these are really sort of like big problems that were addressed through games. On the other side, there are a bunch of sort of just fundamental experiences. You know, I would categorize things that aren't, um, that aren't necessarily uh, academic in intention as also social impact games. So this war of mine, I think is a good example of reminding people of the other side of war, um, being a non-combatant. Uh, there are a variety of others. Yeah, great, great, great game. Yeah. yeah. Kind of uh, building off of that, I'm gonna hijack quick. There's another one in chat. There, there's too uh, many good questions in chat. We'll come back <laughs> to them later in the show too. Um, but sure. Nicole Lazaro is in chat. Um, she wants to know, how do you design a way to measure the social or ecological um, impact of a game? She made Tilt World and was the first mobile game to plant trees. Okay, great. So um, that's a much more complicated question than I think I can answer well here, but I do have a chapter in the book. I sound like I'm pitching the uh, book. I'm not. <laughs> uh, it's much easier. the book, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I have it here, but ultimately <laughs> the idea is that um, uh, I think 
I think the, the best way to assess depends largely on the kinds of impact you're trying to create. So I'll give you an example and I'll draw from my own since we're kind of mentioning. So um, I did work uh, on a game. It was a revision of someone else's design. We created this game called Factitious. There's like 12 people on the team. You can, you can um, look them up if you go to look up the Factitious game online. But in short, uh, one of the big pieces of impact that we consider as part of that game, it's basically a version of... Um, uh, Tinder for news, you swipe right if you think it's real news, left if you think it's fake news, and then we aggregate all that data. So it ends up being this kind of poll for us. But one of the big pieces of social impact, I think, is simply helping people recognize fake news, recognize their own habits. That's the soft one. The hard one is I have data now that explicitly shows at what age people stop being very good at determining what's real and what's fake in news content. I also have some info about demographics across 45,000 users or players, which is a good, healthy set. And so the other social impact is moving the rhetoric switch, if you will, to the benefit of games to show that we can do this work because we still need to help people understand that we can do this work. What were the results of that, the fake news one? Like, uh, <laughs> so, at what age can I expect to just believe everything that I, that I see and read? Uh, it, it happens, uh, according to our self-report data, it happens in your late 50s, early 60s. Uh, that's when the score started declining. But in defense of all ages, the average score was still only in the 60s, the high 60s. Okay. So uh, people were fooled often. And we designed the game to look at the middle so that it was tricky. We didn't try to get people obviously yeah. wrong and obviously right content. That's interesting, because I think that we would all like to think like, oh, I know what fake yeah. news looks like. And then uh, get an abysmal score on, on the video game. Uh, and that's a, that's a good example of why I think there's a lot more social impact in games than we recognize, because everything we play kind of informs us. So the false confidence of saying, oh, yeah, I could drive an indie car. Once you take off all the assists and you realize how hard it is to keep that car on the road, you've now yeah. been impacted and appreciative of the, <laughs> the skill of a driver. Yeah, yeah. If I tried driving a car like I do in like Gran Turismo or, or <laughs> Horizon, it'd probably be uh, not great. Uh, I, I also wanted to talk, um, talk to you a bit. You're giving a virtual talk at GDC 2021, which is this summer now. Um, we just are having GDCs all over the calendar <laughs> oh, yeah. now. Yeah. So the one that ha that's happening this summer, you're, you're giving a talk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's a really interesting topic. Sure. So uh, giving two talks, um, or actually on a panel and a talk, I'll talk about the talk first. Okay. Uh, so in short, uh, I have been working on a forthcoming book project, because why not write a third book, uh, called The Black Game Makers Book. And essentially, it's a collection of um, mostly African-American efforts in game design across both the AAA and indie space. And the idea is obviously um, with the kinds of rallies that we saw last year, me being an African-American of Cape Verdean descent and um, wanting to give researchers and academics a resource so that there's one less excuse to say, well, I don't know what black game makers are doing. Mm -hmm. And so the GDC talk is a, um, it's kind of a litany of the games that people have both submitted and that uh, I've collected as part of my own research. And it's really interesting. I think one of the most important themes that I always emphasize and, and part of the uh, 
desire to, to create this book was that uh, I think people think that there are certain monikers or certain attributes that define a black made game. And explicitly what I was trying to do is, is uh, undo that. And so in the collection, there are endless runners that have nothing to do with the African-American experience. And there are games that definitely do that are games designed around empathy or games designed around um, uh, sort of cultural artifacts that are often attributed to African-American experience like hip hop. Mm -hmm. What are the steps that the game industry can take to be more inclusive of black game developers? So that's a tough one. Um, and if it was an easy one, I think we would have done it. All oh, yeah, right. you know, we're, we're going to solve it by the end of the podcast, Lindsay. So, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, this is, a, I think, a good moment. Uh, so the book, uh, I've actually extended the deadline because I've gotten some requests to, to do so, but I've already uh, started collecting some stories from individuals who have participated in one way or the other in the industry. And one of the, I think, maybe inspiring, but also tough realities is that a number of the indie game makers that actually decided as, as you know, um, people who self-identify as Black uh, have decided, communicated that they couldn't find a space in traditional game design or development, so they made their own. Uh, and you'll see this time and time again. So one of my former students runs something called the Black Game Makers Association, BGMA, and you'll see a number of people who participate in that community say that they tried to do their work somewhere else or they tried to pitch their card game to Mattel, they ended up having to do it themselves. And years ago, when I was sort of screaming at the top of my lungs that indie games are the future because they're going to give access to more people across the world to make more interesting play, I think you're seeing that. So some of these really interesting games that uh, people have submitted for the book, uh, they're just, they're, they're, um, they're exciting in that they're looking at the world a different way and they're opening up genres, which is explicitly what I try to do with my own practice uh, in through critical gameplay, which is to remind people we're playing this little highly populated space over and over again. And then, you know, when something odd, wink, wink, comes out like a walking sim, we get really excited. But there are a bunch of other people saying, I've been trying to design this for years and you haven't given me the airtime. So it's partly about giving people airtime giving them access and then listening to them, actively listening. Yeah, I, I, there's there's that also. And I'm, I'm also uh, bringing that up as I, I see a question that uh, Tremaine Williams had um, asking as a black game developer. Um, they found it very difficult to break into the industry, which led them to create their own indie studio. Um, so I have a follow-up question to that, but um, do you, um, Tremaine is asking, do you, uh, do you know of any resources to reach out to other uh, people of color that have the same issue I had so they can put their talents to use on games. Sure. So I've actually attended, um, this sounds like a plug for GDC, but I really do love it. Um, big, we, love G um, we love GDC. Plug <laughs> GDC. Yeah. So um, Blacks and Games, uh, which has been meeting, always had a kind of a social hour and a couple of other events, uh, occurs at GDC every year. I found that very good for the, the high touch experience where you're actually talking to the person directly, which is really valuable just to know that there's flesh and blood behind all of those activities and to bond with people that way, I think is very valuable. So I can't wait for this pandemic to be over so we can do that again. Uh, the other is, uh, as I mentioned, uh, BGMA uh, and all the communities, there's a, a couple of um, Blacks and Games communities in, on Facebook and they're supportive environments. Uh, and it's also, I think, important as, as anyone who's trying to do something on their own needs to recognize 
you need a support network and you need someone to say, hey, I don't know how to get past this hurdle. I think mentors are essential. I think some form of leadership in these environments helps people not make the same mistakes other folks have and to kind of shortcut to where they want to go. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, when we're talking about um, uh, like people like like you and Tremaine, people of color um, trying to break into the game industry, but then even like the, the solutions that we're talking about involve going into, going into it for yourself, as opposed to, I want to work for Activision or I want to work for Blizzard and work on the next StarCraft. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, having like the, the big monolithic companies uh, being more inclusive rather than, well, I guess I just have to go start my own, you know, game studio, which is awesome to do, but that's not what everybody wants to do. Sure. So some organizations have done this. So Microsoft often sponsors big, uh, but there are, and there are some internships that are focused on that. Mm -hmm. But I I really think that uh, there could be a whole lot more committed than is currently. And I think it's, it's obvious both because the demand is there. When you hear members of a community who are by, by sort of like ratio, high consumers looking to be producers. So I'll, I'll, the, it is a disproportionate number of African-Americans who make games compared to consume games. And it, you can see there's a huge gap between there, at least 7% on, on most estimates. So um, less than 2% of the industry is African-American, but you know, it accounts for nine plus uh, percentage of the consumer base. Then you know the organizations need to find a way to bring folks in. And I, I have to say, um, not to put pressure on them, but the larger organizations have the money and resource and time and human resources to do so. Uh, I get that the fledgling 30-person AA company is just trying to stay above water while they hope that Microsoft buys their game. Uh, but I think the pressure does fall on the larger orgs, as it has happened in other industries over the years, banking, these sort of big monolithic companies that mm-hmm. say, all right, now we're going to commit to this and then put pressure on everyone else to do so. Yeah. I think it's okay to put pressure on them. I think that they can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, Alyssa, did you uh, see any questions in chat that yeah, I particularly fe- good? I feel so bad. This is going to be weird for the audio listeners later on the audio feeds. I have all of my chats over here, so I keep having to look away from the conversation because <laughs> I didn't organize my screens properly. Um, out of chat, uh, given your history with the Global Game Jam, um, Ajay wants to know what value do you see in game jams as a tool to learn slash keep your game making skills sharp? I love game jams. I love game jams for a variety of reasons. I love game jams as a way to sharpen your skill set. I also love them as an opportunity to try something entirely new. Never done audio production. You know what? Spend 48 hours trying to do it with a specific goal. I think of them as training runs. So um, most of my hobbies have been racing, car racing, or um, racing bicycles. And in both cases, we do all of these other activities to get ready for the big race. So if you think of game jams as an opportunity to explore uh, either something that you want to get better at. I've seen some people who are really successful at saying, I've never made an ARG. Regardless of what I do, I'm going to make an alternate reality game, this game jam. That hyper-focused moment is, I think, one of the best ways to get better at what you're doing. 
Uh, I have a lecture online that explicitly gives you all of these sort of uh, tips for doing zen-like game jamming because my own games uh, from Critical Gameplay and from uh, Mind Toggle for my commercial and my art practice are all made under game jam constraints. So uh, it's been years since I've made a game that took more than seven days to do as designer developer and most of them take 36 hours. So I love doing that. The intensity is wonderful. Just try and stay healthy. <laughs> what are your like rapid fire quick tips to success kind of like you're, you have a game jam this weekend what's like the one thing you need to keep in mind to get like the most out of it what's your biggest piece of advice for that kind of thing there's sort of two one of them is to make sure that you have something repeatable that you're testing so scaling is often an issue people think in these con like complex narratives and ultimately i tell them think puzzle game you can repeat copy and do six different times so think algorithmically you'll get a whole lot more game out of it and you can get better feedback from people. And the other really rapid one is um, think about how you can reuse assets. So for example, my game Black Like Me literally used the same art asset for um, every action in the game, every uh, the start screen, the tweet button, the share to Facebook button. It was all a single image with text overlaid and it saved me so much time in production. All right, uh, I'm gonna grab one more from chat here at our current most upvoted question. Um, Jorge wants to know, um, in their country, game academia students tend to shy away from networking events due to imposter syndrome. I don't think I'm enough of a game developer to go yet and like thinking like that, um, despite them trying to motivate people to network more with other devs. What ways do you think we can better motivate or make the environment more welcome to student students to join them at events? So that's a that's a an interesting question. Um, I mean, the first thing is to recognize that uh, you know, like I still have imposter syndrome. I think uh, it's a common thing. And if you're doing if you're you're doing, I think if you're doing your career correctly, what you do is you keep looking at the people who are uh, ahead of you and saying, "I want to be there." That gives you an orientation. That gives you a place to go. And so, in these environments, I think there are a couple of things. And I think that this is actually really important when we talk about diversity in games. In mixers, we need to get past the, um, the sort of cliches of just leaving people in a room with a drink and saying, go ahead and chat with people. Because there are all kinds of social dynamics that occur uh, that just don't work uh, for equity. So I think that structure often helps with that. And I think this is true even outside of games. Uh, I think that anything you can do to encourage people to uh, talk to folks they've never talked to before, but give them a foundation for talking helps a lot. So less of these sort of cheesy icebreakers and more a, uh, an opportunity. Uh, for example, uh, this is often used in Global Game Jam. Uh, at the beginning, what we'll do is we'll have people work in small groups and then make those small groups bigger and bigger so that those who are most comfortable in small groups get to talk with three people that are randomly assigned to them or two people. And then you get it bigger and bigger and you start to recognize the person across the room has a lot in common with the way you're thinking or the kinds of things they're doing. Uh, but generally, I think we need to structure more of these experiences and say, we gave you a beer, go meet everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, that, that's great. And I also like, I, I want to talk to you also, this is going super fast. Um, so uh, we're going to try to hit all of this stuff in your multifaceted career, but you also curated um, exhibits for Smithsonian um, and for the blank arcade. And I just, I want to talk about all this stuff because I know we have a lot of students out there and just talking to you, I think shows that, you know, it doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, just if you're interested in games that you have to go into, you know, commercial AAA game development, there's many facets. So let's talk about the curation aspect, you know, that, sure. that sounds interesting. Sure. What do you do there? So 
Part of my interest, and this is actually why I do a lot of the work, is that I, I want people to recognize the social and cultural value of games. And so many of these exhibitions are about reminding people that. Uh, so I have a publication. I, I published more than 70 papers, so it's somewhere out there. Uh, but in short, uh, I talk about these sort of three distinct types of um, venues for showing your work. Uh, I think of an art exhibit as this opportunity to think about its social cultural value. I think of showcases as an opportunity to kind of pitch your work and then contests as a way to say, I'm the best of this competing group. And on the exhibition side, say the Smithsonian American Art Museum's Indie Arcade, which I co-curated with Chris Totten and Kaylin Le Pen, um, way back when, uh, was explicitly about trying to help the, the world see the value of games. And we selected work that was interesting. Uh, it was a big moment 10 plus years ago when Sam, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, decided to put mm -hmm. uh, games like Journey in their archive and say, we will always maintain this. And every one of those efforts moves the medium towards the space I think it needs to be, which is something that is highly respected uh, and appreciated. So when I curate these, so the Blank Arcade work was actually done as part of the Digital Games Research Association and one year with the Foundations of Digital Games. It's really about trying to give voice to the work that you might not have seen otherwise. And I, well, I want students to recognize that because doing distinct things, doing things that aren't uh, what we call affirmative design, the same thing we've seen over and over again, can really help your career. One of my former students, James uh, Earl Cox III, did this and he's um, been a finalist at IGF. He's um, won prizes at Indiecade and he does it very well. He's got Ichi Zone and all these kind of crazy games that look nothing like what you'd expect. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. Um, and there's... Um... Uh, I'm just going to be jumping all over your, your career here, if you don't yeah. mind, because <laughs> no I, because I think that we might hang out on this topic for a little bit, but your other, your other book is, uh, about love and affection, electronic, what's the name of it again? Uh, love and electronic affection, a design primer. Um, in short, it's an opportunity to reflect on the, what I think is the coming tide of affection games. So years ago, I gave a talk uh, about affection games, which at the time I defined as games where the player has to flirt, hug, kiss, or make love to meet their goals. And there were hundreds of these games, mostly casual games. Uh, in Love and Electronic Affection, uh, I and the uh, co-authors for, for uh, specific chapters look at both the theory behind incorporating versions of affection. So this could be everything from your responsible parent to uh, your uh, a good friend or your lover. And incorporating the, the design theory into traditional games. So it might be everything from uh, we've got case studies in things like Dragon Age, and um, we also have examples of indie games, including my own, that are very much focused on how affection is, is used in games. And I think it's important because eventually what we're gonna do is we're gonna make more AI that we have to win affection from. We're gonna make more non-player characters that do things around their love and affection. Yeah, and there's a lot of game. I mean, there's a lot of people. I mean, it's finding a market in, in uh, bigger and bigger games. Um, where, you know, uh, shipping and trying to get like, or like these kind of, uh, you know, these, these scenarios, we see what, like monster prom, that, isn't that a, yeah, game? I play a bunch of these games you're talking about right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to throw it to you. I'm trying to segue. Just throw me here. under the bus. I play a lot of dating <laughs> Sims. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about that. Cause you get to the point with romance and games where it's kind of like, 
it's the, the, the like success state you want to like kiss the person or like fade to black with the person. And that is victory. But you see more and more uh, games. Like I think Haven does uh, has an entire like arc about the relationship between two married people. It's a wonderful indie game. And just kind of like monster prom is the opposite of that, where it's all about like over gamifying, trying to date someone. But a lot of games are exploring this aspect, like in a completely different way. So it's wonderful to hear you talk about that. I don't have a question. I'm just very happy. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I would add that I think is important for everyone to recognize is that what, what I'm most interested in as a researcher and in giving design recommendations is to help people stop operationalizing it, to stop saying, if you do this thing or pay this money, you will get a kiss, because I think that's a dangerous road. And I think one of the problems is that games were held back historically from exploring this space, but now that they're moved in that space, they're still a little behind other media because they, you know, it's a, we didn't do that. It was a taboo topic before. There's like one specific, uh, in Dragon Age 2, I think uh, there's like the little heart icon when you flirt with someone and you talk to um, the really strong night lady, Aveline, I think her name is, um, and you like hit the flirt button with her and she shoots you down because she's like, no, my affections are in other ways. But that's like the first time I can remember a game giving you that sense of rejection. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's wild. (laughs) More of a comment than a question, but. uh, (laughs) I I get, I I understand the feeling. So. uh... But uh, we can. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pick some uh, some questions here from chat. Uh, you know, while we're while we're rolling, rolling. Uh, Casey asks, "How do you think the pandemic has and will impact the indie slash social impact games industry? How have we gone this long without bringing up? I don't think we've brought it up yet. This is. <laughs> this, new I mean, that's crash. awesome. That's great. Um, but yeah, how how do you think um, that's going to impact the uh, the uh, the social impact games industry? Sure. I think one of the things that's happened is we, we uh, I mean, I think a lot of people started moving back into games. Uh, a lot of the cliches we'd heard about who plays and all this stuff were clearly broken. And as people got tired of um, binging Netflix, they moved to Animal Crossing or they moved to all these other games that gave them some social outlet. And so I think that what we're going to see are two things. One, I suspect that you'll see more people taking the social game and turning it into a social impact game because people get used to that I socialize over a game experience. And I also think that you, you've already seen some of this. The, the complaints about game playing should recede a little more as people who may not have been playing for a couple of years re-engaged friendships through a game. So the game was the thing that facilitated their experience. I think those two things are the, trying to give you a short answer because I know we're running low on time. <laughs> uh, to hijack a little more time and just build yeah. on that, uh, just because I'm curious, um, kind of what you mentioned there, and you've talked like bigger picture, creating like uh, social impact games, like games that are entirety for social impact. What are some smaller things developers can consider to add like a dash of social impact to their own games yeah, as they're absolutely. making them? So years ago, I talked to uh, the Red Cross. They had a lot of interest in trying to uh, integrate what we call the Geneva Accord, the rules about what you do with non-combatants into AAA games. Uh, There are a variety of other people who are exploring these same kinds of concepts. If we think that there are questions that are interesting in a AAA game, a moral conflict, for example, if we integrate those, we've got an opportunity. So uh, I think there's plenty of space there. Awesome. Are are there some, uh, you mentioned this war of mine um by 11 bit great game so is Frostpunk. i like those uh, those folks but um are there are there other games that come to mind that um you know are maybe higher budget or like triple a that you saw and you're like this is you know dealing with uh, some real social issues in a meaningful way 
I am really bad with proper nouns. So I'm actually struggling on a particular experience. Um, I know, for example, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, there is a moment in uh, a major game where you're actually asked, you have an opportunity, you can take it or not, to yeah. uh, attack non-combatants. And okay. uh, that's a really, that's like a really big moment. And it should be a big moment. All these moments that give you that sort of aha, oh my gosh, what did I just do? I think could create tremendous social impact. I think you're talking about Spec Ops the line. Yes. Is that it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I assume that you were going to bring that up. So, so, so <laughs> our, our combined Perfect. powers, we were able to figure out uh, which, which game you're, you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, um, how much time do we have here? We've got um, only a few more minutes. We've got like eight minutes. I think that uh, we can probably hit some from the audience here that have been hanging out. Is game design education appropriate for someone who has been a programmer in non-game industry for a decade and wants to move into game dev? That's from Elliot. Hey, Elliot, I will tell you and I will just uh, come out and say it. I was a developer before I was a designer. So uh, one of the many roles I held is I used to be a multidimensional database administrator at a financial company. And then I turned into a software architect focusing on web technologies. And then I came back to games. So I absolutely think it, it can. I think one of the warnings is uh, changing your mindset towards something that's more creative can sometimes be a hurdle, but most people who move from dev to design uh, outside of games, move into designing games, tend to want that creative outlet, and that's why they've moved in that direction. But sometimes it takes a little retraining, and to that I would recommend game jamming. Game jams. Uh, <laughs> how, about, how about this one? Um, with a lot of single-player games, players might keep a game to themselves. Uh, what, uh, what sparks conversations beyond this? And do you take responsibility to develop this culture around your game? So uh, analogy, uh, trees don't grow without sunlight. If you want to take your game to the next level or get a large audience, then you need to share it. Uh, I'll give you a, a case study. Uh, again, this is a GDC talk that I gave uh, maybe two years ago. I was teaching in Cuba, uh, teaching game narrative in Cuba. And uh, in short, I, while I was here in Miami, had met someone who had made this absolutely gorgeous sort of Transylvania-styled game. And he had been too shy, making everything on his own, been too shy about sharing it. And I just kept telling him, you got to do it. He went to one of my workshops, uh, announced he got $45,000 or so for his uh, game over Kickstarter. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. And if I wasn't so bad with proper nouns, I would, I would tell you what it was, but <laughs> I had forgotten. But if you watch the GDC talk, uh, I think it's called uh, Cuba, Nairobi, something else, oh my, you can find out because I show them at the end. And I'm glad that this, these kinds of, that kind of topics is coming, topic is coming up as far as, you know, being, uh, um, you know, uh, shy, you know, quote unquote, or, you know, having uh, feelings of imposter syndrome, uh, because that's, that's everybody. Like, I, I don't, uh, I, yeah, I, I don't really know anybody, especially in the creative spaces that are just like, I love everything I write or I love like the first draft of this and that. And, you know, I really question if somebody is, you know, actually, uh, you know, 
good at what they do if they think it's if they have no like no self-doubt at all so health a little self-doubt is healthy it's part of the process yeah yeah yeah, a little bit it's when it's recognizing it it, yeah yeah absolutely so i'm glad that people are asking that and and i think a pro tip that people forget is that you can always hide behind your company so if you're an indie game designer it doesn't have to be labeled with your name it could be labeled with your company you could dissolve that company tomorrow and start anew and not be embarrassed by a mistake you made in the past (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to do that. I'm just going to start a bunch of like <laughs> a bunch of companies that just disappear overnight. Yeah. Um, touching on one more question from chat here. You've talked about education. You've talked about games that educate. What about kind of like ed tech games and games created specifically to educate? Um, have you had a lot of experience with those or like what's your kind of advice for that field? Yeah, so I've had some uh, experience with that. And generally, we talk about ed tech. Uh, the two foci that most commonly overlap with games are assessment games, where we're basically testing people through a game. This is very common in simulation spaces. This is usually where VR comes up. Uh, essentially, there are uh, a lot of folks, and it's interesting, there's this pipeline that some folks may not recognize between Washington, D.C., and all the people interested in quote unquote serious games and the people making them, which tend to be sort of around the Orlando area. Area. So there are a bunch of subcontractors who've been making um, their careers out of uh, basically three-letter acronyms from D.C. Uh, all these companies, there are all of these agencies making these kinds of games. And then the other is obviously the uh, games that train you. And again, same kind of pipeline. And there's a very rich history in that. There was a, a conference for years called Games Learning and Society, GLS, out of the University of Wisconsin. Um, I've consulted, or I, I guess I was on the advisory board for Filament Games, which does a lot of this work in the uh, kind of like four through eighth grade American curriculum. Uh, and there are a bunch of others. I think if you have questions about that, one of my favorite conferences, uh, of course, GEC is great too, but Games for Change, uh, because they do do uh, stuff that's looking at both the intersection of games and education and games and society. Say, I want to, so, somebody asked this, and sorry, I lost your name in chat, but um, say I want to throw a game jam. Uh, what are some best practices there? How, how do I do it correctly? Sure. I think typically the best practices are are similar to the same kinds of best practices for getting the right mindset for a game, for Game Jam. I generally encourage people to create an environment that is open, uh, uh, an environment that doesn't, um, that maybe even embraces failure because that's part of the charm of Game Jams. To tell, I, I get my own politics, and these are actually somewhat the politics of Games for Change. The problem with creating a contest around a game jam is that people start worrying about getting the prize. But if the prizes are biggest risk taken, then you're going in the right direction. So it's about structuring people to have an environment where they take big risks and play. So I have a whole set of um, of lectures and obviously at least one book uh, on the benefits of play. So what you're doing as a game jam organizer, I've organized nine jams myself, some themes, some part of a little game jam, is you're really trying to create an environment to support playful experience. So you're creating an environment where you've got all the things that protect them. So think recess playground, no one's gonna hurt themselves, but at the same time, allowing people to just kind of go crazy. I think the best game jams are the ones that take all of the things you'd normally worry about, that um, that phrase of sort of the fleas of living, and just remove them. Don't worry mm-hmm. about the food, we've got you. It'll come, don't worry. Like you need a place to sleep, it's right across the hall. That kind of stuff. So that what you're doing is creating an environment where the only thing to worry about is the game itself. And I do have a talk on some of these structural things. 
Yeah. You, okay. So we're, 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 we're uh, coming towards the end of it here. Uh, I just want to say uh, thanks to everybody in, uh, in chat. Your questions are great. Um, thank you, uh, Lindsay. Um, and what can people do to find out more about you or uh, get your contact information? I know there, there are a couple um, folks in chat that wanted to ask a couple follow-up questions. Sure. So probably best to ask them on Twitter. Uh, and then to reach me, often I would just say professorgrace.com. My um, Twitter handle is mindtoggle. But if you go to professorgrace.com, you can find all my social right on the front page. And then if you have questions about any of the studies, research, videos, they're all linked on that professorgrace.com as well. Yeah, great. Well, thanks again for joining us today. You're absolutely fantastic. Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. <laughs> it's been great.